Probably the best way to get a sense of the meaning of the pismon, the chorus, the interactive slicha of the fifth night before Rosh Hashanah, known as Shachar Kamti Lehodot Lacha Elokei I get up in the morning, reminiscent of so many of the other uh, slichos, which begin with references to getting up in the morning. As I mentioned before, the original model of slichos is to wake up early in the morning, to say slichos, and to continue on into davening. In modern times, for many people, that's replaced by a late-night slichos after chatzos. But the word shachar kamti is a sense of getting up early in the morning. And the chorus in this slicha is taken from Megillus Esther, which Esther pleads her case to Achashverosh and to, to lend uh, urgency and, and passion and, and compulsion to her request. She says, I'm asking for my, myself, my own personal interests, and my nation is involved in this request at all. I'm asking on behalf of each. Now, in Esther's case, she really wasn't asking much on behalf of herself. In a practical sense, there was very little self-interest involved. She was safe. She was the queen. She was very much not imperiled. But she wanted to cast her lot with her people and to demonstrate to Achashverosh that these requests were as important to her as if they were those surrounding her own welfare and her own well-being. And by invoking Esther's cry, the very, very well-known cry, it's very poetic because it rhymes, It lends an air of familiarity. This is one of the more familiar lines when the Chazan when the Baal, uh, Baal Tzvila, the Shlech Tzibor, issues that refrain and screams those words, Nafshi Everyone knows what it refers to. It evokes probably the most famous scene of Tzvila throughout Tanakh, where people really rallied around the cause. We know about Purim from the rearview mirror. We see it as if it was a prepackaged nace, as if everything was already set towards victory, and which is a question of how and when. But according to Chazal, at that point in Shemayim, it was very much a debate, it was very much up in the air, it was a toss-up, as we would say, whether Am Yisrael would continue or they'd be replaced, because they were now out of their land, without a base on Mikdash, perhaps uh, lethargic about returning, because Purim occurs somewhere between the initial return and the final return, I won't say full return, because only 43,000 return, and they were mired in uh, Persian culture, luxuriating at Achashverosh's meal, so it wasn't really clear whether this people deserved to be retained as the chosen people, and, and Haman's decree gathered momentum, gathered traction, and it was only the prayers, the davening, lech kenosis kol which turned the tide. So invoking Esther's plea is a very powerful tool to create a passionate and heart-rendered slicha. So that's the, the, the name of the slicha, Shachar Kamti. The refrain of the slicha is Nafshi Bish'elasi, Yami Bavakashasi. But the slicha is very, very unique, as they all are. Throughout each stanza, the slicha lists various particular elements, particular components of the Beis Hamikdash, which were particularly important towards achieving kapara. Whether it was the um, the white string or the red string which turned white, or it's a kohen or a carbon mincha or a carbon ola or the Mishmeris, the various shifts of the Kohanim, the Chelev, it actually talks about particular body parts of the animal which were sacrificed in the Mizbeach, Chelev being certain fats 
and extra fats that were hanging from the chalef that were placed in the mizbeach, certain lotteries which were thrown or cast determining which kohanim would perform which avodah, references to the levona, to the kataras, to the various aromatic elements which left deep impressions, typically aromatic elements which smell either pungent and, and, and sour or which smell very sweet are remembered for longer periods. The, the sense of smell is one which is very, very durable, as we all know. And that's why all the elements in the Beis HaMikdash which create smells are called Azkarasa. They are memories, because we remember the carbon through their smells in large part, and certainly the Kitares, and certainly the Lavona, which were the spices placed in the carbon Mincha. So each and every stanza lists nostalgically with a sense of longing and wistfulness for each and every one of these components which participated, which facilitated general interaction with the Beis HaMikdash, and in particular, a korban chatas in response to failure, in response to chait, as part of the enabler of tshuva. And each stanza ends with the recognition that these components are no longer available. Ein chatas, ein ola, ein levona, ein kitares, ein mechahein. We no longer have these components. We long for the base hamikdash, and instead, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, please take my words, my prayers, my heart, my whispers, my penitence, take them in place of and move away my sin, and atone for my failures, and absolve my punishment, and grant me the clemency that I seek. So, the Slicha is very, very unique, again, in its level of detail, and as I mentioned, regarding the Slicha on the fourth night, this is, again, closer to a Svartic Slicha, because each stanza has four lines to it, independent of the chorus. The words move much quicker. The slicha of the fourth night is very, very dense, very obtuse, very opaque. Words that just don't really ring with familiarity. They're hard to actually vocalize. Some of the words, uh, the, the, the vocalization is difficult. Here, most of the words are very familiar. They're components of the base on Mikdash. Even to the uninitiated, you'll see that it really moves when you say it. It's just a different, uh, penta- it's just a different meter. It moves much quicker, but it is four sentences for each stanza, and it does allow the level of detail, which I just mentioned. And I guess the best way to understand this slicha is to read the famous Mishnah in Yoma, in which Rabbi Akiva is speaking and writing and teaching and recording, and Rabbi Akiva lived through the Chorban Beis HaMikdash, and he's speaking directly to people who suffered that trauma, and that trauma was felt year-round, but no day more deeply than Yom Kippur. Because our image of Yom Kippur is of a very personal, introspective, we all have our little space that we go to and hide in for 25 hours, and hopefully rendezvous with HaKadosh Baruch Hu amidst silence and solitary experience, and many people are even go Zeratanis Dibor, they don't want to even talk on Yom Kippur at all, because they want to maintain the solitude and the privacy of that encounter with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it's soul-searching, and it's very thought-provoking, and it's very internal. But in the days of the Beis HaMikdash, Yom Kippur was a very, very communal, very collective experience. All our attention was focused on the Beis HaMikdash, on the Kohen Gadol, on this pageant of animals being paraded through the Mishkan and being sacrificed, on that red ribbon, will it turn white, will it not turn white, standing with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, in an area that couldn't normally contain that many, but miraculously it stretched and flexed to contain that many, and bowing down together. And it was a very, very different experience. It was Am Yisrael 
encountering a Kaddish Baruch Hu, asking for a collective national penitence rather than a personal plea for tshuva. And you can imagine the trauma. You can imagine the helplessness. You can imagine the demoralization um, they felt um, when they lost the Beis HaMikdash and the first Yom Kippur came. And it came pretty quickly. If you keep in mind the calendar, the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed Tishabal. And two months later, they faced the prospect of really the first Yom Tovim without the Beis HaMikdash. And of the two, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, they clearly, clearly missed the Beis HaMikdash more so on Yom Kippur. So Kiva has to rebuild and has to reconstitute their spirit, has to restore their, their belief in Yom Kippur, because as, as strange as it sounds, listening to this, it will sound very strange. The average Jew who survived the Chorban could not imagine Yom Kippur without a Beis HaMikdash. It was simply unimaginable. It was simply inconceivable. What does it mean to experience Yom Kippur when all the all the triggers and all the uh, components are completely missing. The entire stage has been removed. So the mission Rabbi in, in Yoma records what Rabbi Kiva said, and he first quoted the Pasuk in Yechazkel Lamed Zayin, which we recite so often, that I am the one, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, who is pouring water on you, and get past all the ritual and all the ceremony. It's about Tahara, and it's about purity, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu can install that, independent of place and time, and then he quotes the Pasig in Yirmiya, which doesn't just speak of a Kaddish Baruch Hu pouring water from a distant heaven, but Mikveh Yisrael Hashem, Hashem is the Mikveh, within which you achieve purity by immersing yourself in Hashem's presence for 25 hours with all of your flaws and with all of your impurities. You walk out cleansed and you walk out rinsed and there's a catharsis by being close to Hashem. And purity isn't a precondition to that rendezvous, it's the effect, it's the consequence of that rendezvous. Hashem is the mikvah, so you enter the mikvah with your tuma, you place yourself in the presence of Hashem as sullied and as dirty as you may be, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu creates that cleansing effect. And Rabbi Kiva was effectively restoring people's faith in Yom Kippur and creating an elasticity to Yom Kippur that allows it to hover, to supersede time and place. And that's why there's a very interesting Pasuk in Achremos, which we do read on Yom Kippur. After the Avodah has been described in detail, the Torah writes, um, let me find, I think it's actually twice, This is in Parak Chavtas, it will be an everlasting hope. Pasuk Lamedalid, The Torah is stressing, this is everlasting, this is a Chok Olam. This will occur, this will unfold, regardless of time and place, regardless of availability of Beis HaMikdash, it's Chukas Olam. It's something which is eternal, something which transcends, which outlasts structures and edifices, environments and ambience. It's a chukah salam. And th- there's that recognition that when Yom Kippur hits, on the one hand, we have to feel the loss of the Beis HaMikdash more deeply. And that's why the end of Musaf, a lot of people lose their patience by the time this part of Musaf comes. But after the Avod, I remember Musaf and Yom Kippur, is effectively, one could say effectively, a, a three-part process. There's the initial part, which is similar more or less to Rosh Hashanah, Piyutim, V'chom Aminim, Onesan Etokev, Kedusha, Aleinu, those are the standard that takes, depending on how long the Chazan, takes about an hour. And then there's another hour, more or less, for the Avodah, just detailing all the activities that took place in the base of Mekdash. And then the last 40 minutes or so are, Typically, Slichos, Yipkimomidos, and Kianu Amecha, and the typical closing sections of Tefillah on Yamim Narayim. So that's what takes so long. In the end of the Avodah, when people are already very fatigued, there's a section having experience and having 
recounted what happened in the Beis Hamikdash, we almost mourn. It's a little bit of Tishabov that breaks out in Yom Kippur, and we mourn the fact that we don't have any of these items anymore, and there is a very, very detailed description. We don't have Ishim, we don't have Ashram, we have no fire, we have no Ashram, we don't have Kohen, we don't have Kitaris. And letter by letter, there's an enumeration and a delineation of what we're missing. Literally, each letter in the Aleph base, there are two things that they represent that corresponded to that letter in the Beis HaMikdash, which began with that letter in the Beis HaMikdash, and we list them. We don't have this, we don't have the Machser in front of me, so I don't have a Machser, but if you open the Machser, you'll see very clearly. So on the one hand, there's there's a sense of feeling the impact and the, the blunt force, the blunt trauma of the Beis HaMikdash's absence as we yearn for the Yom Kippur of yesteryear. On the other hand, there's a restoration of confidence that despite the absence, Yom Kippur is so celestial and so transcendental and so supernatural that it can exist independent of all these reference and all these anchors and all these physical triggers or stimuli. And that's really what's happening in the Slicha of the fifth night. It's very parallel to that mission on Yom HaPeheh. It's very parallel to that section in Musaf of Yom Kippur. I don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have this, but we do have, we do have our speech. We do have our words, Milasi, Todasi. We do have our Rinasi, our song, our Trinasi, our petitioning, our Vidui, our Todah, our thanking Hashem. And it's just a very beautiful slicha. And what makes the slicha even more unique, and if you look carefully when you say the slicha, you'll sense this immediately, is it's very, very personal. It's in, spoken as an individual, not as a collective or not as an individual on behalf of Am Yisrael. Every section ends with words ending in that word she or she or me, I'm speaking Hebrew now, of course. So, for example, the first stanza ends, Nafshi b'she'elasi, my soul is my request, and my people are my petition. And all I have, second stanza, levad milasi, my words, the olasi tfilasi, and my prayer should be in ola. And then the third stanza concludes, todasi zavichasi, my thank you, Takarish Baruch, who should be in lieu of my karban, sihasi, my discussion, minchasi, should be my karban, mincha. It's almost impossible to avoid, it's so obvious. Fourth stanza, eshbochet rinati, I'll pour forth my song, the apilatrinati, beit vadot, fifth stanza, chatati, I will confess my sins. Everything is sitkati, ashmati, taudati, chatati, mine, mine. And there's a real personalization of the Beis Hamikdash, which is a bit startling, because most people never really entered the Beis Hamikdash. They were observers. They, they brought their carbon to the Beis Hamikdash. And typically, when we refer to the Beis Hamikdash, it's in, it's in a very collective voice. So, for example, that parallel section in Musaf of Yom Kippur, the phraseology is very different. The phraseology is, ein lano, we don't have... Mikdash, we don't have our own. We don't have Badim. Ain Lanu, Ain Lanu. It's, it's a collective possession. It's a collective property. We all own and experience the base of Mikdash. When you think of the base of Mikdash, you automatically think of the collective. But that's how we think of the base of Mikdash, because we're 2,000 years removed from it. But the base of Mikdash is also a very personal experience for people, especially during those very intimate and trying moments of the recovery from sin and failure, where you need that sense of personal ownership, personal accountability, personal catharsis, and personal release. There have to be real moments of entering as close as you can to the base of Mikdash with your carbon, with your vidoy, with your smicha, leaning on the animal, confessing your sin. Uh, it's very, very striking that this slicha, the voice is just so personal. 
And you see that at the end of every stanza. Ola si, tefila si. So that's the pismon, known as Shachar Kamti, the beginning, known more popularly as Nachi Bish'ela si, ve'amibu v'akasha si, the refrain, the, the, the chorus. And it speaks, of course, about the Beis HaMikdash. It invokes Esther with that famous phrase. And it describes the Beis HaMikdash as a restoration of confidence that without the Beis HaMikdash we can still undergo and experience Yom Kippur. And also, very, it's very personal. An individual actually misses the Beis HaMikdash as you miss a friend who you relied upon and hoping to find something to stand in place of the Beis HaMikdash.